Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We are here today to talk about how to choose the right negative and positive cognitions when we're in that assessment phase with our clients. So this is a really important piece of the assessment. Um, And so we just want to look at what is the negative cognition supposed to be? How do we select it? What are some of the struggles we can come across and work through those together? So I just want to start with defining and just talking about in general, what is a negative cognition? Like, what's the point of it? What are we looking for in that? Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, what um, what comes up for you when you explore negative cognitions with your clients? Yeah. Um, you know, so that usually comes up uh, for me, actually, in the history taking. Um, we usually think of it more associated with assessment as we're assessing a specific target, but a lot of times when we're doing history taking and kind of general intake conversations with our clients, we start to hear those negative cognitions yeah, the minute so they true. start talking. Um, so for me, I've kind of made a practice of making little notes to myself um, about those cognitions or even kind of pointing them out to clients and saying, hey, is that really you know how you talk to yourself in there? And usually they say yes, um, and maybe will tell me more um, because especially the, you know, the most strongly held negative beliefs that they have, they're going to permeate everything, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think to me, that's why finding those negative cognitions is so important. Uh, They are very much the driving force and the mechanism by which our traumas actually impact us. You know, we have the trauma, we have that experience. But the reason why it stays so profoundly impactful to us is because of what we believe after we go through mm-hmm. that. And so uh, that that to me is kind of the definition that I use, right? It is the thing that our trauma has taught us to believe um, negatively about ourselves. And this is how I explain it to clients. It, it can be about ourself, um, about the world, and about what we can expect from life. Right. So any negative belief that we have in that category to me is fair game as a negative cognition to work with any MDR. A lot of times it's a common thread mm-hmm. that to kind of find what are the experiences that are feeding the symptoms that we have. Mm-hmm. We can kind of trace that common thread of a of a negative belief that goes back. Yeah. And a, a few important things about what a negative cognition is, is it has to be um, a self-belief, something that right. you hold for yourself, or as you said, like, or about the world in mm-hmm. which you live in. Mm-hmm. So it's, I am bad, or I, I can't, can't get what I want. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't trust people. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve good things. Yeah. So it's not always, I, I usually tell my clients when they're like, what do you mean a negative belief? Um, most of them pop it off really quick. It's, they're mm-hmm. very familiar with that is, but not always. And so I'll say a lot of times they start with I am or I am not. Mm-hmm. There are some that don't start with that, but it's kind of that self-belief. It's about them. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, really important that it's what they're believing now so, and we use that key word in there that now is really important in the script of, so as you think about that target or that experience, what belief or negative belief do you hold about yourself now? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you're in your script, don't leave that word out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's really true. I think another really important piece is 
that it has to be in order to work with it in this situation, it has to be something that um, applies in many areas of their life, right? So common example would be uh, they've had a car accident. And when we're asking them for the negative belief, it would be really easy for them to say something like, um, they hit me, (laughs) right? Uh And uh, that was scary. Or um, I'm not safe driving, right? And so helping them kind of identify that, well, if you're not safe in that context, is it ever true that you start to feel like you're not safe in other places as well? Um, And very occasionally you'll have someone say, no, it's only in this one tiny little corner of my life. However, those are not usually the things that are driving people to therapy. If it's really, really isolated like that until it gets to a certain point, and then that's a phobia and, and they will show up. But more commonly... It's that I've had something happen in this one little area of my life, but there's been so much generalization to other areas. Because I wasn't safe here, now I don't feel safe here Mm -hmm. and here and here. Um, And so when we're trying to find that, it's really important that we're finding something that um, is broad enough that it will address all those different areas that it's touched. Um, Because when we go to reprocess it, we want that generalization. Yeah, and it it could generalize to... Like you said about the car example, like I'm never safe in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be more of that generalized war. In that moment, they weren't safe at that time, but now they're generalizing it to all of my experiences in the car. I'm going to be unsafe. Right. Where even if you're driving 15 miles an hour in your neighborhood, your anxiety is through the roof mm-hmm. because it's I'm unsafe right now. Right. Um, and also the the piece you kind of mentioned was that irrational piece. So maybe mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. idea of you know, driving is unsafe, can kind of be accurate, can be true. There are unsafe things about it, but the irrational piece is the I'm never safer, mm-hmm. I'm always unsafe, mm-hmm. um, something bad is going to happen. Right, right. Holding something that's irrational. One of my favorite examples of uh, that irrational, another way of thinking about that is it has to be untrue. Right. We can't we can't process something that's actually true. So a good example of that is if you have a client that comes in and their irrational belief is something along the lines of my mother didn't love me. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, unfortunately, that can be true. Mm-hmm. We, we may identify. Yeah, she she really didn't. So if we use that as a negative cognition, we're not going to get anywhere yeah. because that was true. And all the evidence points to that. But what we can change that to is something like, I'm not lovable at all, or yeah. I'm not lovable, um, because that is a irrational generalization from that one situation. And so I think we have to be really mindful about asking ourselves, is this a true statement or an untrue statement? We yeah. want to work with the untrue rather than the true. And sometimes we don't want that to be, you know, that that statement to be true. So my mom mm-hmm. didn't love me. We want to be like, well, she, she might have, right. and you don't know. And sometimes moms don't know how to show it well, but she loved really, you as best as she could. Right. Yeah. But really looking at what's that self-belief under that. And I, I like to call it the magic question. It's really not that magic, but just to simply say, if that were true, and I emphasize if, because I don't want to agree like, well, yes, that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. I don't know if mom mm-hmm. loved them or not. But if that were true, what would that mean about you as a person? That's a great question. I use that a lot as well. Yeah, and it just kind of immediately shifts the focus. And now they're looking at themselves. They're getting to some of those deep core negative self-beliefs at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and it's not saying, yeah, this is right. But what what does that feel like that mm-hmm. means about yeah. you as a person now? Yeah. And just emphasizing it 
it's it's now what they believe. So it's not as important what they believed about themselves at the time it happened because that can change over time. So maybe they were a, a kid and they believed a certain thing and over time they've reprocessed that naturally and kind of come to this healthy adaptive thought about it. But it's what they hold about themselves right now that's maladaptive that's really going to affect their symptoms, mm-hmm. their behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. So with the understanding of what a negative cognition is um, and those things to make sure as we're looking for it, I want to explore how do we go about selecting a negative cognition with our clients and kind of pose the question of is selecting quote unquote the correct negative cognition that important? Mm-hmm. Um, how important is it? It feels really important. Um, so Melissa, what do you think about that? Like how important is it to find yeah. the right negative belief? So I kind of, the answer I think for me at least is yes and no. Mm-hmm. So what I have found is as long as we are working with a negative cognition that fits all those things that we just identified, right? It's about me, the client. Um, it's not true, right? Um, and all those things that we just listed, as long as it fits that criteria, we can work with it. And what I always say to clients is, um, this may shift and change a little bit. In fact, it probably will. We kind of want it to, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so it's going to morph and change. Um, and that's really okay and even expected. We just need a good starting place. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do find that if it doesn't fit those criteria, it's the first stuck point, right? The, the brain can't move if we have not really clarified for it that we're talking about um, something about us that we're talking about something that isn't true. If we haven't done that piece of it, it's like the brain doesn't know where to go, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, we're basically reinforcing, well, yeah, this is true. And, um, I see people, especially in training, I see that a lot where they haven't quite figured out how to find that right one. And so I think for me, the right one is one that fits those criteria. So there can be many right ones. Mm-hmm. And two, to know that as you're exploring that finding, the right one is going to make the process much more direct and efficient. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to mean that if we find one that's maybe like a secondary negative belief Mm -hmm. or uh, not the very core, that it's not going to work and we're not going to get there. Like the brain will get us there, but we may have a few more hurdles or we may reprocess this one aspect, but then there's still something disturbing about it Mm -hmm. or something that's still holding a charge or a disturbance. And a lot of times that falls back on maybe that cognition didn't quite get to the very deepest root of it. That's right. Um, yeah. And so that that answer of yes and no is I feel the same way with that, that it's really important, but it's not essential. Right. So another uh, factor that we have to consider is as a therapist, we may know or think we know what the real one is. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> we kind of have this sense like, oh, I know what's under there. Mm-hmm. But we also have this thing called client resistance or lack of readiness, and we need to be really respectful. Um, A good example of this that I run into pretty routinely because of the kind of clients that I work with, and I think it's common to a lot of us, is clients will come in ready to work on the safety piece before they're ready to work on the shame piece. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, we're working on an assault, let's just say, and I'm pushing them and saying, you know, but what about I'm not lovable or I'm damaged or I'm dirty or I'm defective? 
if I if I am pushing them to go towards the shame piece of it before they're really ready, I'm going to send them out of their window of tolerance and reprocessing is going to stall out because of that. Whereas if they come in and say it's I'm not safe and they're, you know, not acknowledging the shame piece at all, I'm not going to bring that up right away mm-hmm. because I don't know if they're ready to go there. They've given me no signal of that. So we may have a hunch that there is a kind of a truer, deeper negative cognition that is going to be really, really important, essential to address at some point. But it's okay to titrate our work with people and say they're ready to work on the safety piece. So we're going to do that. And maybe I adjust my expectations and say, we're probably not going to get to a zero until they're ready to work with yeah, the shame. Yeah. Right? We're probably going to stop somewhere before then. And maybe at that point, I would gently bring up, hey, maybe this is what's left. Or what happens nine times out of 10, in the midst of reprocessing, it comes up naturally. Yeah. And then it was their idea. I wasn't pushing them. I wasn't leading them. And for me, that's always preferable if it's spontaneous for them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we have to go back and start over, um, right. go back to assessment and start from the very beginning with this new cognition and get the new SUD score, like right. just follow the client where they're at. Uh, that means they're really the only point of the assessment is to, to identify and narrow in the focus on what's really going on. It, there's, it doesn't, it's not necessarily for us to have a certain score that we're like, okay, we achieve this, we can check it off. That's all great if we get there. But it's to narrow them in on the most disturbing parts, um, pull it all up to be activated, and then we immediately go into reprocessing. Yeah. So it's all surfaced, activated, identified. And so if it naturally goes into its own place of being a different cognition or something else comes up, just go with that. Follow them where they're at, and we don't have to stick to the specific structure of now we have to go back and reassess everything. Great. And I, I think that the thing that you just mentioned about when we're in assessment phase, we really want to move through that as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. right? We, do, we don't want to belabor any part of that. Um, and so we don't want to get into an accidental kind of power struggle or investigative experience with our yeah. clients over what's the real cognition here, right? Um, if you want to have that conversation, do it separately, right? Mm-hmm. Do it do it at a different time. But that's not uh, – assessment is not the moment to be doing that because, like you said, we want to light it up and go. Right. Um, we don't want to be – yanking them out of that experience in order to make sure that we really have the one that we think is right. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to, once again, kind of trust that process that it's going to come up and evolve naturally. I think a big helpful tool in identifying that correct negative cognition is knowing that there's kind of three categories that negative beliefs fall under. And mm-hmm. so as long as we're getting somewhere in that same category. We don't have to get super picky about exactly what words that represent it. Mm -hmm. Um, So Melissa, will you talk a little bit about those three categories? Yeah. um, In most of the trainings, we all kind of were given the same list of uh, negative and positive cognitions. Um, and, And if for some reason you don't have that list, it's super easy to find on the internet, Google EMDR negative cognition list, and it's right there for you. Um, the categories that they break this down into, which I, I think are, is really helpful just to conceptualize this, would be responsibility. Um, and there's two versions of responsibility. Okay, so they kind of break this down into two categories. Number one, responsibility, I am something wrong. So examples of that, I'm terrible, I'm worthless, I'm shameful, I'm not lovable. And the one that we all think about, I am not good enough, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's responsibility, I am something wrong. 
And then there's responsibility. I did something wrong, which can be an important distinction. If if somebody's not struggling with the shame piece, but the the guilt, the the remorse, and the responsibility of I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that, it's a little bit different. Um, so I did something wrong. Here's a big one that I hear a lot. I should have known better, mm-hmm. um, or I'm I'm stupid for not seeing that or letting them fool me or letting them take me in, right? So that's the responsibility. I did something wrong. And then there's the safety slash vulnerability category. Um, I can't, I can't be trusted. I can't trust myself. I can't trust anyone. I'm in danger. I'm not safe. I'm going to die. Um, all of that would be safety and vulnerability. Control and choice is the last category. So this has a lot to do with power, feelings of helplessness, feelings of weakness. I can't get what I want. I'm a failure. I will fail. All of those are in the control and choice category. And the nice thing about this list is that uh, over on the other side, it also gives uh, options for the positive version of Mm -hmm. that. Um, And one thing, I don't know if you've noticed this, Jen, but one thing that I notice a lot is that sometimes people will – give a negative cognition, and then it's almost like their positive cognition is in a totally different category. Mm -hmm. It's like, where did that come from? And what I've kind of determined for myself is I don't worry about that as long as it is in the same category as far as those options that we just listed. Right. So maybe it's not an exact match, but if it's still under that heading of responsibility or still under that heading of safety, I don't fuss about it too much. And I think if if that comes up and the positive cognition um, is in a different category, but the cognition that would maybe mirror the negative cognition that would actually mirror that seems to be a little bit deeper Mm -hmm. of a root, I'll explore it in that way. So if what you wish you believed about yourself was that I am good enough, I wonder if there's a negative belief in there and, and use that as a tool to explore. Maybe they just didn't feel safe enough or comfortable enough or there's too much shame around it to even identify the negative right. belief right. of I'm not good enough, but they could go to something yep. like I'm not safe. Or maybe they're a really logical analytical client mm-hmm. and because yeah, their tough. shame, yeah. And because their shame doesn't make sense to them, it seems like it's an irrational response, which it is. But mm-hmm. even those of us that are really cognitive, we have our irrational responses. So it may be that they can't say or feel like they can't say I'm not good enough because they know it doesn't make sense. Right? Like I know I am. But yeah. I, yeah. Like in my head, you know, we hear that mm-hmm. all the time. In my head, I know this, but in my gut, I don't. Um, and so I like that idea of kind of reverse exploring. If they mm-hmm. give us that that deeper truth with the positive, maybe we can go back and kind of gently explore that as, hey, would the negative be also true of something that you believe. Um, so that might be a good way in. You just mentioned that head versus gut. Um, mm-hmm. I do that a lot with clients who will say that, like, I feel like I, I know better than that, or, well, no, that one doesn't really fit. And they can tell they're just analyzing it and they're very, um, and they want to get the right about one. It. Yes. Yeah. And so as therapists, we have to ask often, okay, um, I want to know what comes up for you, not from your head, but from right. your gut level. Like, yep. what do you feel when I say it or when you read it? You feel a response to it. Like, you mm-hmm. feel a charge with it or pull towards it. So um, helping clients to distinguish between the two differences of I know this versus I really feel it in a gut level. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. So let's see. We were talking about the three categories. Was mm-hmm. there anything? Oh, and I think the thought that had come up for me with that is, 
making sure that as we're selecting a negative cognition, um, if it's in one of those categories, it doesn't have to be any specific wording. There's a lot of expressions, Mm -hmm. but that category can tell us a lot. Safety, as you were mentioning earlier, can be something that they want to address first. Um, and sometimes it's necessary to address that mm-hmm. first before they can even start thinking about shame or something on a deeper mm-hmm. level. If they don't feel safe or the world feels unsafe, right. it's too hard for them to get to anything else. Mm-hmm. And so there's almost like this peeling back these layers that you peel back. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we need to get to the deepest core of the root, which often falls back into um, like worth and value, but being That's lovable right. um, as a person. But we have to get there in a certain order. So they may be able to go there right away and they may not. I think of it as like the EMDR version of Maslow's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if people have no sense of control and choice in their life, talking with them about shame is a pretty miserable experience, yep. right? Because they, it feels like there's nothing they can do about that. If, they're, if they always feel victimized... Um, it's very, very hard for them to do any kind of shame work, right? Because shame is alleviated by acceptance of self and love and all of that stuff. Um, and But if we don't have control and choice in our own life, that is just way, way too far away. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at this list, we our ultimate goal is to be working on the responsibility and the, the worth piece, that self-worth. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that until some of those other things Uh, are resolved for them or they come in with some of those resources we have to kind of pace ourselves um, and be okay with working on that control and choice piece or that safety piece for a while before we can do that deeper work Mm -hmm. the identity work so really what prompted this episode as um been a topic to discuss was Emdria has a consultant digest that they put out every day. You get an email that has different conversations between consultants. It's a great resource if you are a consultant and you're not connected with that yet. But this was kind of a topic that was posed on there. And as I was reading through the responses, I was like, wow, there's a lot of philosophies Mm -hmm. on how to select a cognition and what the therapist's role is in that. So I'll say I have a certain way that I do. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Um, There's kind of a spectrum of how involved the therapist is in this process. And I would say after reading through those, I've seen the spectrum varies anywhere from highly involved. It's a therapist-led process. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of the idea of the therapist is the expert. Mm -hmm. It's our job to give that to them, to identify that for them. Yeah, Yeah. we're the one who should know that, be Mm -hmm. able to kind of read through, read between the lines and identify what that is, and that a client isn't capable um, a lot of times in their trauma of being able to see what the actual true cognition is. So that's one end. The other end of the spectrum is it's the therapist, or I mean, it's the client who is the expert, and the therapist really should have no involvement. So mm-hmm. we shouldn't put our own thoughts or insight opinion in at all. And then I think there's all of the middle ground mm-hmm. in between there. So mm-hmm. how, Melissa, how do you personally mm-hmm. practice it? So I actually borrow a uh, philosophy that comes out of education. So one of the premises that they use in education for determining how involved a teacher should be is something called the zone of proximal development, which I feel fancy every time I say that, right? It's so fancy. (laughs) But basically all it means is we we lead just barely beyond where the the person is able to go themselves. So uh, an easy example of this is that when you're playing with a kid, 
you don't do all the stuff for them because that takes the fun out of play, but you're there to assist them just a little bit with the things that they're not quite able to do. They're almost able to do it, but they need just a little bit of a boost to get there, right? And what they have found with all of the research they've done on learning styles and learning ability is that if you have a guide that doesn't do all of it for you, but does just the piece, the next piece that you can't quite get to on your own, that that takes that philosophy of just giving them a boost to that next level, um, that's where learning uh, happens the most rapidly. It's basically the idea of supported learning, supported growth. And Mm -hmm. I think we can do that with our clients in this category where whatever amount of insight they come up with, right, whatever level of self-awareness they have, we're always leading just the next step. Um, From addiction philosophy and treating addictions, uh, we think of this as stages of change, Mm -hmm. right? We can't work on two stages beyond because that's not where they are and we're going to waste our time. We're always working on just the next stage. So when we're talking to clients about this, if they come in and say, I have no idea. If you work with teenagers, sometimes all you get is, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Famous. (laughs) Yeah. And you can ask it a million different ways and all you're going to get is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, we got to lead a little more, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are not quite at a level, um, a maturity level to have that awareness. But if you're working with a fellow therapist, it's going to feel really condescending to go, no, no, no. Here, here's the list. And and I've circled the one for you that I think right. it is, right? And that's going to feel not great because they're at a totally different place in their awareness and understanding. And so I think that um, trying to work with a client just beyond, offering help just beyond where they're able to go themselves for me is how I kind of uh, approach that. So you call that the zone of proximal mm-hmm. development. Yeah. I'm going to so add you, that to You feel fancy now, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I want to use that now <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. I love that though. I think that's so important of – how do we support them in identifying it? You'd mentioned earlier, if a client can come up with something on their own, there's so much more power mm-hmm. to that for them. And so mm-hmm. how can we kind of be the support role or um, gentle leader guide to that? And so I think there's some different tools that we can use, whether it be the list of cognitions that we hand them and we say, hey, kind of skim through this, scan over it. And let me know what pops out to you. Mm-hmm. What, which ones um, ring a ring a bell? That's something mm-hmm. that Phil Manfield uses of um, trying to throw out some options or give them. And what is the one that rings a bell for them? Yeah. He had said on this digest post that the one that is correct should ring a bell both for the therapist and the client. Like it feels right to both. Um, I like that. That's a good way. I do too. I think too that idea of you know. If we do offer, you know, whether we're handing them the list or I just verbally say to them, hey, does this fit? Um, I almost always ask a follow up question, say, would you change? Would you change that in any way Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. it fit even more? And what will happen is you actually end up getting negative cognitions that are more like their internal voice. Mm -hmm. Right. That are more like the internal critic that they listen to all day long. So things like I'll offer the idea of saying, um, I'm I'm not good enough, right? Well, yeah, that connects, that resonates with them. So we could use that. But then I'll ask that question, would you change that in any way to make it fit better for you? And then I'll get things like clients saying, I'm a piece of crap. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And oh, that's something that one of my parents used to say to me all the time. That's the voice that they listen to in their head. So if we can use the language, the exact words that they're they're saying to themselves all day, I think it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, particularly if we're working with teenagers, we need to put it in their language. Therapists speak and teenage speak are not the same. Right. No. <laughs> um, and so making sure that it's in their language that it, uh, like you said, rings true for them. And that the list of negative cognitions, my, me personally, my practice, I will always ask without it to just see, mm-hmm. as you're saying, Lisa, what is there one that just so clearly pops off for them that they're like, yep, this is just what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of clients do know that because it's constantly running in their mind. Mm-hmm. And then the clients who maybe struggle or they look like they're contemplating too hard or they're like, oh, I just, I don't know. I'll give them that list and then say, can you scan through this and see if any of those you really connect with or ring true for you? What rings a bell? I've heard some other suggestions on um, this would probably be a little more on the spectrum of therapist led, but um, a therapist I've worked with will give three or four negative cognitions that maybe she thinks it could be. And then the client would then select from those mm-hmm. like, yeah, I think this one is the, the most right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's various ways that you can do that. What do you think about, I have this happen a lot, where they can't pick between two because both feel so true. Yeah, I just put them both down. Me too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or do like a, a, a combination yes. of, you know, I don't deserve good things and I can't trust myself or, yes. you know, whatever that combo is. Okay. So mm-hmm. when it's two from two different categories, mm-hmm. that gets sometimes a little bit trickier because we're starting almost like we've got one foot in this area and one foot in mm-hmm. another area and we're trying to reprocess both. So um, if it's if it's several, because I'll have some clients go through that list and be like, well, this one, All this one, this, mm-hmm. one, this one, this one, this one. At that point, I'll ask the question, which of those feels either the most true or the most upsetting Yeah, to you? Yeah. If it's just two, I'll usually stick. I don't do more than two. Uh, but if it's two negative cognitions, I'll say, you know what, we can use them both. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to move through it quickly, as you mentioned yep. before, so I don't spend a lot of time on let's deliberate between which one and mm-hmm. uh, focus on it a lot. But if it's two from two different categories, depending on what they are, I may try to encourage them to go with one or the other. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. And if they're just like, but it's really both. Okay. You know, they're the expert at that point. Let's see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And if we get a few sets in and we're just struggling with that, Mm -hmm. but they're in all reality, their brain's going to take them where Where it needs needs to to be between those two. I agree. So no point in getting into a huge discussion that pulls them out of the assessment, like in really activating all of that. We don't want to get them too cognitive about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And I really like that clarifying question. Which one is the most upsetting? Which one is the most distressing? Which one do you feel the most in your body? Yeah. I think can be really clarifying as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So with that spectrum of different approaches, um, I think we need to know that we may have to vary between our approaches based on our clients too. Agreed. So whether it's a child, a teen, you know, an mm-hmm. adult, what type of adult, what type of child. Mm-hmm. So having just a toolbox, like we talk on a lot of these episodes, just things that you can pull out if necessary. Mm-hmm. So get familiar with different ways to approach it, practice them, try them out to where you're comfortable with it. Um, and then you'll kind of find what your niche is and where you feel good, but then you'll have those tools for clients if you need to switch it up a little. Yeah. Is there Do you work with kids very often or much? I used to quite a bit. Okay. I don't nearly as much anymore. Um, Any specific tools you use for kiddos? Yeah, for kids, um, I think there there are so many really good tools out 
ones that, uh, depending on the age of child, they have a basically it's a flashcard set, which mm-hmm. you know I would kind of lay them all out. And uh, when I was doing this with kids, you couldn't buy it as easily, so I actually just kind of made my own. Um, Another thing that I did was you can buy those emotion monsters Mm -hmm. that have all the emotions in their belly. Um, And I took the little emotion ones and would, on one side it has the emotion word, and then on the other I actually stuck a piece of paper that had the negative cognition that kind of goes with that. Um, So they would go through the little emotion monsters because I think kids, they resonate with body and feeling much more than they do words. So we would kind of identify the feeling um, and then find the words to kind of wrap around that. And yeah. that seemed to just make the process a little bit easier. So, yeah, I would use flashcards, um, the emotion monster, definitely. Yeah. Those are good. Mm-hmm. A lot of times with kids, it boils down to I'm bad or I'm good because mm-hmm. that's the vocabulary that they have. Mm-hmm. Or I'm something bad's going to happen. Yep. Um, or I'm okay, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. So some of those basic terms, so keeping that in mind. But too, with our adult clients, depending on their education level, their developmental you know, delays if we're working with clients, um, to not to make sure your vocabulary is matching them where they're at. And you kind of talked about that already. But mm-hmm. Um, a few other things that came up in that the Andrea Consultants Digest was just posing the idea of as we're trying to identify our role with identifying negative cognitions, in Shapiro really specifically has these known phrases that she used. So stay out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, EMDR is client-centered and don't challenge the cognitions. It was Roy Kissling's post that um, – he mentioned these and then he was able to kind of explain where those come from. So I want to talk on that. He had some great points with a lot of good insight, but that stay out of the way um, is really key in letting the client's brain do the work. Mm -hmm. And that's important to note. But when it comes up in this idea of acknowledging how do we help them identify the cognition, this would um, support the idea of we're not supposed to have a role in it. We're supposed to step back. It's client centered, stay out of the way. Um, But really, when she brings that up in her material, she's talking about in the desensitization, the reprocessing piece of it. So we're supposed to sit back and not interfere, but that it um, isn't necessarily referencing the idea of helping them find the negative cognition. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a question that was thrown out there of, well, if this is in her material and she uses this, does that maybe allude to the idea that we shouldn't have any role in it Mm -hmm. at all? And so I think it's about balancing that. The other piece of don't challenge the cognitions, um, that is, which we started kind of touching on this, but as we're getting into that assessment, that is not the right time to challenge it from a CBT perspective. That's right. So not not the right timing to be able to say, but so maybe that example used earlier of my mom didn't love me. Maybe we've worked with their mom and family counseling and we can tell it's just a really distorted cognition of the client that the mom's, you know, maybe made some mistakes, had struggles, but really does love their child and mm-hmm. is making this big effort. Um, that wouldn't be the time to go in and start to say, you know, that's interesting. You think that because I've seen different or it looks different from these sessions. That's CBT, Mm -hmm. um, challenging those cognitions. But when we're assessing what their negative belief is, it's whatever feels true to them at that time. Mm -hmm. No argument about it. Great. Well, and I think that we got to remember with EMDR, we are not trying to stimulate the prefrontal cortex, Mm, right? And debate, analysis, logic, evidence, 
That is the language of the prefrontal cortex. When we are doing EMDR, that um, the, the brain centers that we are stimulating and wanting to work with work in the world of body sensation and emotion and memory. And so we can't expect that our intellect is going to be a door into that at all. Mm-hmm. And I am, I really struggle with that, still do sometimes. Of uh, For me, staying out of the way means um, editing out all of my, you know, brilliant wisdom <laughs> that I want to impart <laughs> yeah. to the client um, and recognizing that is not what they need right now. And if there is a point to share that, it will come in the form of an interweave when they're stuck and they need it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we want to interject as little as possible. And that kind of goes back to my philosophy about that zone of development and only giving as much as they absolutely need before they can do it themselves. And with all that being said, CBT is a very effective approach. Mm -hmm. Research supports it, but it's looking at the timing for that infinite wisdom Mm -hmm. Um, because there is the right time, whether it's in the form of an interweave or it's between reprocessing sessions um, to be able to have those conversations and share some of those Mm -hmm. insights or utilize tools like CBT and challenging, you know, different thoughts. But when we're in the assessment phase, we are really accessing and activating all of their trauma and Mm -hmm. it's, it's pulled to the forefront. And so even if we wanted to pull that in, um, there's no rationalizing something when their trauma is activated in that moment. And we want it activated because we're just about to provide them a tool to help reprocess Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. and get relief, but we can't go into a place of trying to challenge that cognition at that time. Okay, so let's see here. Now talking about positive cognitions. Mm-hmm. So as we shift over from the negative cognition, we mentioned it earlier of wanting to have the positive cognition that kind of is paired with that negative cognition or complements it um, somewhere from that same category as we're shifting over. We may not get that in the beginning, but as we're moving into, so say you've worked with a client, we've desensitized, we've got a set of a zero, and we're now moving into installation. We want to check back with the positive cognition. Um, We've made note of it. So does I am good enough still feel like the right fit for you? Mm -hmm. A lot of clients will change it at that Mm -hmm. point, whether they make it, they kind of fine tune it or they make it more accurate or they choose a completely different one. Yep. You have a, you mentioned before you may have do. an example so of that. I don't know that I've ever, you know, had EMDR on myself without the positive cognition changing significantly. Mm-hmm. In fact, for me, that's almost kind of the indication that, okay, this is almost resolved is when there's kind of this new spontaneous feeling of, oh, this is what's actually true. So I have a funny example of it because it was one of the first times that it happened and it was very... I don't know, surprising and illuminating to me, I guess. So when we were doing certification, we would practice on each other, all the therapists that were going through kind of in my cohort. And so it was my turn to be the client. So I'm being video recorded, which is an interesting experience Mm -hmm. as a client as well and gave me a lot of empathy. Um, But I was so in the zone at some point because we did like a two-hour session (laughs) and uh, I was, you know, completely in the back of my brain. I had lost all, you know, awareness of what was going on. So I wasn't paying attention to the fact that the camera was going at all. I was just in the moment. And we had been reprocessing a pretty intense childhood, like four-year-old kind of memory that was all about um, worth. And the negative cognition started out as I am nothing, right? And, and, you know, along the lines of I don't matter. And so the positive cognition originally was 
I do matter, uh-huh. right? This wonderful wish I could believe that when I think about this felt totally far away. By the end of reprocessing, the very competent therapist says to me, so does that still feel like a fit? And before he could even finish asking the question, I said, absolutely not. That does not fit at all. The real cognition is I am powerful. Mm. <laughs> I was like so in the zone and really like feeling like, oh, my gosh, I actually believe that in yeah. this, you know, really kind of expansive experience of I feel powerful. I can't believe this. And those are the moments where we know something has shifted. A new synapse has been created. You know, the magic of EMDR has happened in this moment. And so we we want to expect, anticipate, encourage those really spontaneous shifts. Um, Now, by no means does it have to happen in order for it to be effective. But I think for me, that was kind of a moment that made me realize, I really don't need to stress about the positive cognition. Like this is going to become what it needs to be as the reprocessing continues. In the assessment phase, we really just kind of get that baseline and find something that they can work with to try to stimulate that adaptive side just a little bit. Um, But if reprocessing goes well, which it usually does, the real positive cognition will kind of, you know, come forth naturally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more powerful once they've desensitized all that trauma, Mm -hmm. they can connect with it. Like in your experience, you're feeling it. Yes. And so it is really true at that point. I actually use that video when I teach at colleges about EMDR, number one, because, you know, HIPAA, it's me, so I can share with whomever I want. It's nice. But it's the watching the video back, it was so apparent to me what a physical shift it was. You know, my body immediately represented that feeling mm-hmm. of power. It was, you know, my chest puffed up. I, you know, sat up straighter. My voice got louder. <laughs> like I was clearly feeling it. And it, always, it still makes me giggle when I think about it. Um, but I do. I think that when that when that shift occurs, the body responds to it when, when we're able to have that kind of spontaneous uh, coming forth yeah. of, of that positive. And we don't want to pigeon our whole, our pigeonhole our clients to this idea of well, it has to be this one. Right. That's what you originally said. Right. So when we're first getting that positive cognition, don't spend a lot of time on finding the right one. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, clients will go to this place of like, oh, but I can't. I, I but I don't believe that. That's not true. Right. And you know, wanting to discuss it, but just if what do you wish would be true? Mm-hmm. What do you wish mm-hmm. could feel true? Yeah. Um, getting that down and then moving on, and then asking, you know putting more effort into it and that second time around what positive cognition feels right now Mm -hmm. um and then going into installing that and strengthening that belief for them yeah one of the things that i've kind of figured out by trial and error is not to push the client to have a positive cognition during the assessment phase that feels too far away for them Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of stress our clients out if we offer a positive cognition that feels so far away, they're like, I'm never going to be able to believe that. Right. Like that just feels so impossible. If I offer the positive cognition of I'm worthy of love and they're looking at me like, you're nuts, lady. This yeah. is not happening today. Um, and so I'll ask them. So if that was like the ultimate goal, how would you back that up to a place that feels more doable today? And they'll say something like, well, what if we just work with I'm not bad. Yeah. Okay. We can work with that. And then we just move straight on. And then in the process, it may slowly morph from I'm not bad to I'm a decent person. Mm -hmm. I'm a good person. And they slowly kind of inch their way up to that ultimate goal of I'm worthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love, love that. I love that you bring that up too, because it is, of our clients think it's way out of reach. Mm -hmm. 
they just they're not invested in the process they're overwhelmed they're trying to please us like what am i going to say to get it to that because Mm -hmm. i know i'm never actually going to get there Mm -hmm. that feels impossible exactly and i think that really leaves me with this just overall insight of we have to meet our clients where they are there is nothing about this process that is so rigid so calculated or structured that says forget the client and what they're saying and what their needs are stick to the script Mm -hmm. and um the scripts are important the order of things is important but what is even more important is where where our clients are at and Mm -hmm. as long as we're really attuned with that and we can acknowledge what their needs are and kind of follow them with a strong understanding of everything else it's going to be okay yeah like we're going to be okay and they're going to be okay yeah And so don't get caught up. I've got um, a few examples of therapists I've worked with right after basic training who are so focused on, okay, but this is what the next thing in line says I need Mm -hmm. to be asking and I have to get this negative belief or I have to get this right positive cognition Mm -hmm. because the training said that, that they've completely forgotten their client is even in the room with them or, or existing. And so don't get so consumed by what's right and what's wrong and what's the next thing in order that we lose sight of what our clients need and where they're at now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, guys, this has been another great episode. I look forward to hearing your comments, questions, suggestions for other episodes in the future. And we're just excited to continue this process and journey with you guys. Have a great couple of weeks and we'll be in touch again soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.